welcome to the latest episode of the Flower Pop Podcast from the National Botanic Garden of Wales. My name's Bruce Langridge, and today uh, I've got with me the garden's new curator, relatively new. It's it's Alex Summers. Hi, Alex. Hi there, Bruce. And I'm going to be talking to you today, Alex, about what is a curator, what do you think about the garden before you came here, and probably what, what plans have you got. But for those who've listened to previous podcasts, Alex is in the footsteps of uh, Will Ritchie, who was the previous curator here, and uh, I did a couple of podcasts with Will. So if you, it'd be interesting to contrast, maybe. What do you reckon? Yeah. Oh, I, I, you know, I think we're broadly on the same page, but there'll be changes. There'll be differences and changes. That's great. Well, first of all, Alex, just need to know a little bit about you. Because I, I, personally, I've met you a couple of times before you came here. Obviously, didn't know you are going to be moving here. You came and gave a talk here a few years ago, I think, about your travels in Vietnam. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, then um, myself, uh, Will Ritchie and Martin, one of our horticulturists, came and see, saw you in Cambridge Botanic Garden. You kindly showed us round. Whistlestop tour. Loved it. Really, really amazing. But uh, tell me about uh, where you come from and uh, how did you actually get to this place? So um, I think I started my career journey particularly in horticulture, when I was born, because both my parents are horticulturalists. Are they? Yeah, oh. so uh, I kind of had the benefit. The plants have always been there in the background. They've been something I've played around with, messed around with, been in nature since since that early point. Um, and also tried to tried to escape that as I hit my degree, um, and I did a degree in zoology. Um, yeah, I know, the dark side, Bruce, the dark <laughs> side, Bruce. Um, but discovered quite quickly through that that I really wasn't as interested in animals uh, as I was in plants, and if I had to have a focus, I wanted something that was going to be was going to be um, a group that I really, really liked. So it was either insects or plants, yeah. and in the end, I went down the route of plants. I also realised at that point that I wasn't built to work in an office, and that I was much better outside. So I finished my degree and started on the course of working towards becoming a botanical horticulturalist. So I started off, um, really, I started off with a private contract to do in rights of way, and oh. then that was in and around where I'm from, in Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire. Then I moved uh, to Cambridge University Botanic Garden to do my first traineeship, um, and from there went on to Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew for three years, and did the Kew Diploma, which was the most amazing three years of my life. Still stands up to being something that I look back and reflect on with real pride, to be honest. Yeah. Then I was fortunate... Actually, Alex, tell me about that a little bit more, because... I know we have uh, other members of staff who have been through that course mm-hmm. in different guises. What, what was it that made you love it so much? I think um, it was the opportunity to work in an institution that had such an incredible plant collection. I mean, you've got an area there, a couple of acres of glass, which probably has more plant species in it than anywhere else on the planet. Yeah. You have all of these fantastic horticulturalists and scientists from all over the world, so the diversity of ideas, thoughts, opinions on plants, natural history in the world is just incredible. It's just this melting pot of everything to do with plants and nature. And if you're in those formative years of training, you get just a whole array of and diversity of opinions. So as you're formulating what you want to do, you're able to do it in a place that really is able to help you shape yourself for what you want to be. So that was amazing. And when I finished there, the RHS Garden Club of America scholarship uh, which was currently available at the time and is still available, um, had just started doing a programme where they included both an opportunity to do a year working at Longwood Gardens in the States and just in Pennsylvania, or you could do a master's. 
uh, or pay towards a master's. And I opted for the Longwood Gardens element and was fortunate enough to get to get the RHS GCA scholarship and spent a year working in the States. And that was, again, I mean, for me, it allowed me to see all these natural environments that I'd so wanted to see, everything from long grass prairies right mm. through to deserts and then through to just sort of the boreal vegetation that you get up to in New England. And then fortunately, whilst I was there equally, I got the role that I did for te the next 10 years, which was to be the Glasshouse Supervisor at Cambridge University Botanic Garden. And I kind of feel like I hit that just at the right moment. The gardens was really starting to wake up. Visitor numbers were starting to grow. There was lots of opportunity to build and develop the collections. And I kind of got free reign to take the glass houses forward over the course of those 10 years. And I grew thousands of different species that uh, and families that are barely ever grown. I got the opportunity to flower the two big titanarums. I flowered the moonflower. We did a whole other array of other things. And it a, was a beautiful place to work, lovely team. Yeah. I feel like... I just landed at the right moment in the right place and was given the freedom to do the to do things I could have only ever dreamed of. Wonderful. Was it you, Alex, who... Um, this might be bread and butter to you. It might seem like very basic. But you, I visited Cambridge Botanic Garden 10 years or so, ago, and it, there was a jade vine everywhere. Yes. That was so gorgeous. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> one of my predecessors under glass had planted that. In the, in the, I think it was, actually went, came into the collection in 1984, and that was one of our real USPs. People came from all over to see that. And it would fl start flowering about March time and would go right on to June, July. The colour is incredible. It's this jade colour that is so unusual in plants. And it has that wow tropical factor that I think people are, are looking for sometimes when they come to see things. It kind of shows you that diversity... In, in the plant kingdom, you know, you've got 400,000 plant species. It's absolutely amazing. You know, you can have just our typical sort of dandelion and then you in the UK and then you can go across to the tropics and find this huge array of flower shapes, flower types, different pollinators, different uh, life cycles. And I, I think that that for me, each year I worked at, at Cambridge, each year I learned more about plants. And I, I and the, by the end, I still felt like I've only just scratched the surface. So I think it just proves how amazing the plant kingdom is. Yeah, and I'll tell you what I really like when we when you gave us a little mini tour around, Alex. I really loved... I mean, your glasshouses are all wonderful, you know, and you've got places where you can walk amongst the canopy inside. That was really interesting. But I love your little display of mosses. That was <laughs> done with love, I could tell. And you made your little signs to go with it all. Yeah, I think we, um, we were very fortunate at Cambridge that we regularly have researchers come in and they wanted to do this project or that project and they wanted to work with this unusual plant and it was our job under glass to deal with all the plants and all of the scenarios that were just that little bit different to the normal experimental conditions required and increasingly particularly in plant sciences one of the core model organisms that's being looked at is liverworts so we were asked yeah. increasingly to grow liverworts and there is no real book on how to grow liverworts or some mosses and the other hornworts that we were asked to grow and therefore we kind of had to make it up from scratch and that and the beauty of that is that when you go into doing something like that it's a whole game of problem solving and that's what i love about horticulture is that i love the plants in themselves they're amazing every time you go to the next layer you see this next layer of intricacy and and just awesomeness that it really takes time and observation to understand but equally if you have to grow them you there is no prescriptive recipe of how to do it every situation slightly different therefore it always challenges you and you gave uh, martin knowles a sample when we were over there as well of umbrella which is the a relative 
from New Caledonia of the very first, possibly one of the very first flowering plants on Earth. Is that yeah, fair to say that? It's always one of these things, it's hard to, to define it correctly so that you don't end up with people <laughs> correcting you. I think it's it's the sister to all the other flowering plants. That's kind of where you want to put it. It, it kind of has traits, it has characters that, that are probably very similar to those early evolving flowering plants. Right, um, for Martin wanted it for the double wall garden. I mm. don't even know it's gone in the double wall garden yet, has it? No, I don't think we could ever grow it in the double wall garden because the conditions it requires are more appropriate to maybe a glass house that's frost-free, not maybe, to a glass house that's frost-free, <laughs> shaded and moist. So it will go out, it'll probably go into the tropical house. Um, okay. And the plant material I provided was rooted by Carly Green here. So she did a fantastic job, one of our team in horticulture. And we, I brought further material over when I came it's dioecious, so yeah. uh, you get separate male and female plants. And from the seed material I grew at Cambridge, we have separate male and female plants. We also have them over here now at National Botanic Gardens of Wales. Anyway, I love that generous spirit of botanic gardens sharing things with each other. Mm. That that um, that way of working, I think, is lovely. It's about duplication. I think yeah. increasingly the problem with plant collections is they can be ephemeral. It, yeah. You know, all manner of reasons can lead to losing plants in a collection so the best thing we can do with them is duplicate them because then we provide the greatest insurance against catastrophic catastrophic events and um, increasingly i think in the botanic gardens industry we're understanding that better and we're doing hopefully a better job at duplicating across other botanic gardens yeah now alex when you um first came over here you came as the head of glass houses and i know when um uh, speaking to will ritchie when you've been appointed he was so excited <laughs> thought of you the, like the Ronaldo signing for us <laughs> and uh, so because you know so much you l clearly love what you're doing and I can see you've brought so much energy with you uh, but you've in a short time uh, you've become the curator Will has left you become the curator can you tell us what a curator's job is what does that actually mean it's an interesting one I think when we say curator in botanic gardens in the UK, it means lots of different things. You go, you could be at Cambridge University Botanic Garden, for example, where the curator there is a scientist still, and so half of his time is spent doing his science and half of his time is spent curating the collections. So in the sense, when I say curating the collections, that's deciding the strategy that goes into deciding what collections we have there, uh, how we record those collections, how we audit those collections, um, and how we take them forward into the future. So there's a huge strategic role to it. But there's a, a large part of the operational day-to-day -day collection management. But equally over here, I as a curator have less of the science side and more of the operational side. So I may equally have a hand in managing the horticultural side of things. So that's uh, everything from how we, how we go about, for example, composting and doing all those sides uh, of the horticultural game right through to what machinery we might purchase to do mowing. So I think in the UK, curator is one of these jobs that is quite a fluid role, depending okay. on the institution you're in. Okay. Do you think that includes the aesthetic look of a garden? Yes, I think it does. I think that it's, I think depending on what curator you spoke to, they would have a different opinion on that one. I think if you took, like, for example, if you spoke to Sam at Cambridge, I think aesthetics would be important because it's the engagement side. Um, but... Equally, I think the curator's eye should be more on what we actually have in the collections 
then sometimes purely on the aesthetic. My team, my horticultural team is there to deliver that. My job is to set the parameters for the collections that come into the institution. So I think it's a team game in that sense. Okay, because I've always thought the um, uh, we present here science with beauty. Mm. I think that's still a fair thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, we're the interface between... I think the gardens provides an interface between science and the public. We are the people hopefully, who take some of the fantastic science that we do here or some of the fantastic science that is done across the country on plants and the natural world, and we provide, hopefully, an accessible interface to interact with that. Yeah, and that includes things like the evolution of flowering plants or non-flowering plants, indeed. Uh, that's also a scientific display, isn't it, really? Massively. They're, they're, the problem is we have some really complex topics sometimes that we, we're trying to... Uh, share with our public audience and I think sharing is a huge part of what we're trying to achieve and if we do that and we and we're not we're not concerned with the the attractiveness the aesthetics of the displays that we're putting forward equally if we do it and we're not um, concerned with the language we use and the way that we interact um, we don't do a particularly good job of it so it's absolutely essential that people feel engaged and whether that engagement comes because they find the display attractive so they want to learn more or whether they find the way that we presented something interesting so they want to learn more that's great that's what we want yeah now as a curator you have certain resources and that includes staff and space and sort of um, equipment and even like the polytunnel we're sat in right now uh, could you explain a little bit what you've got i know we, in our previous podcast with James Kettle. James went into it in quite a lot of detail. Mm. Just give us a little bit of an overview of what, what you've got. We are incredibly fortunate here at National Botanic Gardens of Wales. We have the large garden and estate. So the garden is about 70 acres. The wider estate is about 568 acres. Obviously the garden seats into that. Yeah. Um, a large part of that is National Nature Reserve somewhere in the realms about 360 acres, yeah. um, of which uh, most of that is organically farmed. And I think that gives us this fantastic contrast between cultivated plant material and wild plant material. Um, and I think in a botanic gardens in the UK, that's quite a unique position to be in. Yeah. Outside of that, we then have the facilities like the Great Glass House. You know, the Great Glass House, what, something like 3,500 square metres of, of space under glass dedicated to Mediterranean-type ecosystems of the world. We have the Tropical House in the Inner Walled Garden. We have the nursery glass houses that sit behind here, and we also have the nursery and uh, tree nursery back there. We're going to have a plant reception facility very shortly. And then we have all of the machinery and kit that allows us to do our job. So I think when it comes down to it, as a garden, particularly coming into it, I know that a lot of the time we lament on what we don't have. I come in here and think that we have a hell of a lot of facilities, kit, and the opportunities for me are, are are quite massive really i think one of our biggest jobs is actually focusing down on what we're going to do so taking that those resources we do have yeah. and taking them forward i think the most limited resource we have well there's two is people and time and yeah. they're the resources that i want to be very careful about managing so that we're able to achieve what we're what we're setting out to achieve in our mission and strategic objectives as a botanic garden so just give us a bit of an idea how much staff you have got so we have Upwards of about 20 members of staff. Um, yeah. I say upwards of about 20 members of staff because we have apprentices, so it, it can be relatively flexible on that, depending on how many apprentices we have in the team. But the team we have there are the key to managing 
the botanic gardens that we see in front of us here and the wider estate without those guys there what people come in and see at the botanic gardens the collections that we have simply wouldn't exist yeah alongside them we have a large contribution from volunteers i mean again i would say that what you see out the front there is hugely added to by the volunteer workforce we have here and we have some fantastically dedicated volunteers who come in week in week out and allow us to maintain the collections for example when i was in glass the two i think about will and nicola who were and caroline who were with us in the nursery houses yeah. and every week if they hadn't been there we simply wouldn't have delivered the amount of work and the amount of management uh, that we were able to achieve with the collections we did there so for example if i think about it will for example did a huge amount of potting on of orchids or caroline took forward all the bulbous collections there and their dedication and their passion for it makes it worthwhile as well. You know, I, was, I went for a walk at the weekend and I bumped into this older gentleman who found out I worked at the Botanic Garden mm. and he was telling me with real pride that his wife had uh, planted lots of um, daffodils here in the early days of the garden mm. and she came until probably 2005 or six. he was saying and he still comes back now, I mean, they're probably in their 80s and she's still walks around with pride it shows us a long lasting legacy is going on now with this garden of people who have helped out very quietly in many places i think that's the key isn't it i don't think everybody has to shout about what they do here i think that it's very important though that we acknowledge that everything that people see in front of them is is from the team effort of the garden the team yeah. isn't simply us in horticulture or it isn't simply the maintenance team. You know, it's everyone through from the cleaners right up to the various directors who've been through. And yeah. I really feel like if you look out there now, the legacy's starting to show. It's a, it's a fantastic garden space. And I feel with the limited staff resource we have, we really punch above our level, if you know what I mean. That's great, because I was going to ask you for an outsider's view from when you first came here. And just chatting to you in the short time we've known each other, Alex, one thing I loved about your perception of here is that you loved, just got very excited, uh, not only by ferns growing on the branches, <laughs> the boughs of trees, because you don't get that over in Cambridge. No, you never get that in Cambridge. You even love the marsh marigolds or the king cuts. <laughs> but it's for us, you know, we see a lot. But I love that. If I go over to the east of England, I'm, I'm cooing over, I don't know, fields of asparagus or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think, I think the gardens is an incredible resource and I think that it's very easy I know what it feels like after being at Cambridge for 10 years to stare at your navel and focus on all the things you don't have and stop seeing what an amazing space you're in so when I arrived here for example and you did the tour through Trouscoid and we yeah. went up through the wider estate yeah. and we saw the orchids and the meadow regeneration that's been done or I look at the great glass house and I see the hard work that Matt for example has put in over the years just to keep that thing going to keep to keep it living for example through covid and also then the beautiful display that's still there and the fantastic collections that exist i think that we we need to celebrate more what we have i'm not saying that that shouldn't be some inane positivity that doesn't reflect on what we need but i think we also need to be realistic about what we have as well and right. i think that we have an incredible resource here I think that what we need to be better at doing is using it for, for Wales as a whole. And I think that that is my would be my one critical point that I put into this, which is we need to shout more about what we do because we do some good stuff. So when I, yeah. you know, when I see and we reflect on what Q's doing and what 
um, Royal Botanic Gardens Edinburgh is doing. Sometimes, we'd, we, or quite often, we're doing that. We're just not very good at, at shouting about it. But equally, I think we need to be talking about, well, how does somebody in North Wales access and use us yeah. and, how, and, and feel that we are part of their wider community? How long you had the job for as a curator? Now? Five months. And you came initially over here how long ago? I arrived in June last year, so I've been here maybe 10 months. Okay, so you seem from the south to me, Alex, as someone with a just ridiculous amount of energy. You seem to be having <laughs> ideas here, there and everywhere. But what I want to chat to you now is sort of like the changes you've made so mm-hmm. far mm-hmm. and maybe some of the ideas you've got for the future, because I know you've got plenty of those. Can you just tell us a little bit what, what you've done so far? Okay, I mean, I think so far... I suppose the biggest amount of time I spent here is with the glass houses. So yeah, yeah. I look at that. I think a large part of what we did with uh, the glass houses was, for example, in the nursery glass houses, was rationalise what we had there. I hope helped to bring in the irrigation that's gone into those houses, so so that we can better use people's time. I was always interested in how we can work more efficiently, so yeah. that I can focus more of the team's time on growing the plant collections and doing the botanic garden stuff. So the science the education, the conservation that we should be doing, and less time on doing the operational duties that really bring none of that to the public. So, you know, watering and mowing, whilst they're important for maintaining the collection, quite often take up huge amounts of time that they needn't take up with if, if if we look at it and we can actually automate those processes and use our really skilled staff's time for better, for better jobs. Uh, equally, I'm a big one for being as proud of the operational sides as we are of the, the public facing sides. So as we move forward, I'd like to be in, in a better place to show off what we do behind the scenes as much as we show off what we do front of house. Yeah. And we can't do that if our operational side is untidy, unsafe. And I think at the moment or we're in a position where we're trying to take forward the operational side. So we're trying to tidy it up. We're trying to make sure that where we can, we really look after things. So, so for example, pots. You know, I don't want to be buying in loads of pots. It's not good from a sustainable perspective, uh, for a sustainability perspective. Yeah. And equally, and when I say sustainability, I'm both thinking financial and environmental. And so, I want to make sure that if we store them, we store them somewhere, and we have a process to wash them so that they are so that we're not passing pathogens from. When I say pathogens, I'm thinking pests and diseases yeah. from one group of plants we grow to the next lot we do. So, what I'm always interested in is how we can take that back operational space and make it as tidy as possible so that it's as safe as possible, so that it's as sustainable as possible and so it's as efficient as possible. And so we're in a big process of doing that at the moment. The next one is collections, really. You know, a botanic garden for me is built around the collections that it holds. And at the moment, we are only 20 years old. We do not, uh, and we should not expect to have collections that rival Kew or Edinburgh or even Cambridge University Botanic Garden where I came from. They have, All of them have had more than 150, 200, maybe 300 years to build those collections. So our big job here is to to look at what collections we have, to make sure that those collections are full of plant material that has depth and substance to it. You know, it's it's got provenance data, so we know where it comes from, so that it's of greater value to anyone who wants to come and do research with it or conservation with it, so that the collections that we do hold are pertinent to us as an institution. So we're in the National Botanic Garden of Wales, for example, and therefore it's absolutely essential that we focus on Welsh flora. And so I want to see that front and centre. That has to be absolute front and centre. Mm. Alongside that, we have the largest 
single span glass house in the world, and that's dedicated to Mediterranean type ecosystems of the world. Well, in my book, therefore, our Mediterranean collections have to be world leading, and that means that we have to work with institutions across the Mediterranean type ecosystems of the world, so that's California, Chile, the Cape in South Africa, the Mediterranean Basin, and Western Australia, and we have to work with botanic gardens and other institutions in those environments to, to, to build up the ex situ collections, so the collections out of habitat, that are of use to conservation and research of those plants for the future. So that's talking to those, to those institutions about, well, what should we have in our great glass house? And we started that process and we will continue that one. And that's a long game. It won't happen this year, it won't happen next year, but maybe in 10 years time when I sit down and have a conversation with somebody, I hope that, that when we reflect back on things that we're moving in that direction. Yeah, would, would that include uh, water plants in the, uh, the, the pond there? I would love to see water plants <laughs> oh. in the main pond. And I suppose that is the other thing, is how we use all parts of our capacity. So if we have a glass house like that, and let's be realistic, a glass house like that takes money to heat it, takes energy to heat it, takes human resources to oversee all of the different aspects that we have to maintain it, that way we use every inch of the capacity we have in there to the best possible use that we can so that we're doing fulfilling all the roles we should so if we're to take the definition the basic definition of botanic garden you know we hold living collections labeled living collections or let's take even a little bit further than that living collections which have records that sit behind them that are used for the purposes of science conservation and education and therefore if we look at the great glass house i want to see that the collections we hold in there so if I take if I look at a plant with you, Bruce, I want to be able to say, well, does it tick those boxes? How many yeah. boxes does it tick? Yeah. And if it doesn't tick any of them, why are we growing it in there? Why are we wasting our resources on that plant? Well, it's worth reflecting anyone listening to this. If you want to look at our plant collections, they're on a, a special sort of web page called Garden Explorer. Yeah. You find that on our website under plant collections, and there's a click to that. And it, Believe me, have a go. It's fantastic. You, you can put in all different search engines, can't you, to find out where they're from, what different plant families they're from, all sorts of things you want to know. It's on there, and then you can actually see little dots on that, and then come and find them. That's that's a massive part of it, and and, and thanks to the hard work of Will, um, when he was curator, and Dawn, our plant records officer, we have a situation where we do a good job with plant records, and equally we've worked hard to make them accessible, and that's really important because. You can't get people into use our collections if nobody really knows what we've got here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And a huge part of that database and the accessibility to that database through the, the web page, the Garden Explorer web page, is that we want people using our collection. So if there's one thing that I could say is whatever you anybody listens to this, if you're doing something with plants and you think Botanic Gardens might be able to help, please get in touch because I'm sure we can. Or we might be able to work out how somebody we know can help and then we might be able to bring the plant material here to, to, to use it for that purpose. I work in the Science Centre, and right now we're having herbarium training mm. day. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of people up there learning how to make herbarium sheets. Hopefully some of them will work with us in the future and continue our collections that way as well. Because that, 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 those sort of collections really complement what you do. Massively. I, I think that we've got to see the a collection or, or, or an accession as, a, as an extended item. So we don't just deal with the plants 
the plant has a herbarium specimen, we might collect seed from it, we might have photographs taken from it, we might have additional collection data from where it came from yeah. in the wild. All of those, and we might equally collect DNA from it. They're yeah. all extended components that we get from a single accession. An accession isn't simply the plant that you might see in front of you in the garden. It's a whole array of things. But the more we can get out of it, it's talking about using that resource so that, again, like we said, going around the glass house, if I look at that plant, I can tick multiple boxes and therefore the limited resources we have, so again, going back to staff and time being yeah. the critical ones there, are used to the best possible um, outcome. Uh, tell me about the tropical house, what we have variously called tropical house, plus Pili Pala. Uh, you're re redeveloping that as well. Yeah, so I think we're now in the position that we have a new Glasshouse Senior, which uh, fills the position that I used to hold. Um, who's and that? Ru Russell Beaton. So we're very lucky to get him from uh, Oxford University Botanic Garden. He's been on Tresco, he was at Cambridge University Botanic Garden, RHS Wisley. Uh, similarly, the way that Will felt about myself, I feel very positively about getting right. Russell over here. Um, and we are very keen to take the tropical house forward. It's a phenomenal resource. It, it's a space where we can bring to our public audience essentially the most diverse plant-based ecosystems of the world, tropical forests. And what we want to do is we want to do that in such a way that we explore something that's pertinent and relevant to our visitor, to our public audience. And that, for us, is ethnobotany. So that's uh, plants and people. That's how tropical forests are used by humans on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's the crop species that come from them, that's the um, ecosystem services that we get out of them and I think that it's essential that when we talk about plants to all the audiences you come through that we make it as relevant as possible. So it's all fine that I may want to grow some really rare and usual tropical <laughs> plant that for me is really really interesting that really um, Gets, gets me going but equally a lot of the time those things just are, are either not very interesting to the to, <laughs> to our normal visitor and I'm, I'm setting myself as abnormal in this um or equally i don't think they tell a story that's pertinent to what we're trying to engage with our public audience on so uh, what's been very important with it is when we looked at the tropical house we've sort of said the backbone of the planting has to be plant material that is that is useful for us to tell a story, and the story is diversity. Yeah. Do you know, I went down um, a couple of weeks ago, the my, the education team I work with, uh, they had a school coming in wanting to look at uh, plants they might be familiar with. Mm. So we actually went into the tropical house and went looking round before the visit. Mm. We found the likes of black pepper, mm. paya, mm. banana, coffee. Mm. Yeah, these are sort of things that you're talking about, aren't they? That Absolutely. People want to know about. They're, they're, they're the things that I think we use day to day that we don't realise truly where they come from. Yeah. All the history, the ongoing present um, issues that go alongside them. So, for example, bananas are a great example of a crop that is under threat because of pests and diseases. That is so important to us that affects the economy of many, many countries. And I think it's important that through a house like our tropical house, we provide a window into different diverse spaces. If I'm right here, Alex, I've not asked you about this before. Are you going to be moving the Conserving Welsh Plants display to the Wallace Garden? Hang on, yes. Yeah, so for me, we're the National Botanic Gardens of Wales. Welsh flora is at the heart of anything we do. 
and we have a fantastic conserving wildlife plants area. It's been done in such a way that I really feel it engages on the habitats, some of the habitats that were picked to yeah. look at. And Wales has some fantastic habitats, you know. Yeah. But what I don't like about it is that we have it sited at the edge of an, our operational site. It's right next to the, the sewage uh, treatment pools. And for me, that is not a place that I feel celebrates Welsh flora. And therefore, I want to put it front and centre in the garden. The Wallace Garden, for me, is front and centre in, in the garden. At the moment, it's kind of a location in the garden where we don't have a clear idea of what we're trying to do with it. I yeah, think sure. I think that, that previous themes for that area have not quite worked. And understandably, I think, it was, I think they were going to look at plant genetics in it, and I know we did that at Cambridge. It's a very difficult thing to engage with the public on and to build displays that that are effective and successful yeah i do the interpretation for a displays we've done on that one it's really really hard and yeah. it, and, it, and, and things have to be in flower at a certain time or certainly at least showing for it to make any sense whatsoever yeah and it, it never really worked i don't think and i don't think it's uh, I, I don't think it's probably the right space for doing that no and i think but I, whereas i think the one of the major areas in which the gardens works and will continue to work and hopefully will really grow uh, what it's doing is with Welsh native flora mm. and so I want that to be in a I want the Welsh native so essentially we represent different habitats from across Wales so mm. everything from um, some of the sort of the primeval Atlantic forest um, habitats that people yeah. will know right through to coal spoil right through to these new habitats yeah, that are emerging yeah. and some of these new habitats or many of these new habitats are just as important as some of these older ones and I want to celebrate not only the habitats, but the flora that's found in them. So we have our Conserving Welsh Natives horticulturalist Carly, who's done a lot of work with that. And hopefully we can extend them to a greater extent throughout the wider garden. So obviously we're going to put them there in the Wallace Garden. But I hope that people should expect to see Welsh Natives peppered right through the plantings of the garden. Because for me, they are absolutely critical to what we do here. Yeah, I, I really enjoy the sort of um, some of the Welsh natives have sort of gone a bit rogue on the, the what we call call the wild garden or the vistas around the Great Glass House, which you know which is lawn which is, was left to sort of turn into a bit of meadow, and I love for instance the progress of uh, cowslips. Yes, they just appeared a few years ago. We don't know really where from. They just started dotting. They found the way around. I've got no idea. They've been moving around. They're quite heavy, heavy sort of seed, aren't they? So we're not it's a a bird which is pooping it out along the way, I'm not sure. I, know, I must admit, it's the funny you say with the cowslips, because I have noticed in recent years, you seem to, or I see whether I'm noticing it more, or whether they really have expanded their range. Everywhere I go, I seem to notice lots and lots more of them. So maybe it's just the management regimes we use are, are more appropriate for them to establish. But I agree with you. I think that the Welsh natives we have throughout the garden are, are some of our most attractive plants, actually. And I think that we need to celebrate this more, because... One of the things we need to look at in Wales is how we better manage the landscapes we have to improve and increase biodiversity. And, you know, we had a fantastic talk by um, Barry Stewart from Celtic Wildflowers. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about Kenvig at Dunes and the associated um, steelworks along the front there at Port Albert. And some of those new systems down there, some of those bits that have been created from the slag necessarily from, from the steelworks, are some of the most diverse areas that we have in those those wider environs and i think it's really important that we start to understand that that 
all human all landscapes in wales in fact probably most most systems across the world have some degree of human influence and that just because a habitat isn't pristine it doesn't yeah. mean it's not important yeah. and i think one of the things i want to do through conserving welsh natives and through a great inclusion of welsh natives is to get people to understand that the brownsfield site around that corner so the you know the old old factory that was knocked down might have some of the most important rarest plants in wales or fungi yeah. and actually that these plates these spaces are to be tr as much treasured as some of the pristine woodland that we might have for example in snowdonia or some of the other areas in Wales's national parks. And if you listen to Emma Williams's podcast, which we did about two or three months ago, Emma's done a lot of work in cold spoil mm. and, and looking at the fungi then. Just finding amazing things. I want to ask you another change you're going to be making as well. Is you're moving the what's called the Sorbus collection, the white beams, mm -hmm. them, and are you moving the orchard down in Double Ward Garden? So the orchard in the Double Ward Garden staying in the Double Ward Garden. So we're working with what the master plan originally said there, but I want our Welsh orchard to truly be an orchard where people walk through it and it has their wow factor. I want to be in autumn or spring, and I want to be in a situation where you go through and you're in this old traditional orchard celebrating uh, what is a very important and very threatened uh, habitat in Wales, but equally that also celebrates Welsh heritage. So we have the national collection of Welsh apple varieties and I want to expand out on that. And I think we're very much going to push to have a orchard for the Celtic nations. So I want to fit us into that wider Celtic fringe that Wales is part of, you know, yeah. Um, so everywhere from Ireland right through to the Isle of Man and Cornwall. Uh, equally, I want to take uh, Wales's natural heritage, i.e. The, the white beans, and put it alongside its cultural heritage, its Welsh apple varieties, and those will go into the slips. So the slips, or one, one side of the slips, that's the area that falls between yeah. the outer walled garden and the inner walled garden. And there we will have um, the white bean, that's where we'll move the white beans to, so we have done a lot of work here on the endemic white beans that you uh, and saw, uh, sorbus or rowans that you find in the in the UK, and I would like to be at the position where not only do we hold a collection that talks about that, but we hold a collection that is important for the conservation of those species as well, and I want it to be front and centre. And then lastly, with those areas, I want to manage the grass in such a way that we take away as much mowing as possible. So, for example, with the Welsh orchard. We're going to fence around it, stop fence around it, and we're going to bring our bowween sheep into the centre of the garden. Right. And they will do all of the mowing. So that takes away, and we, as we said earlier in the in, in the podcast, uh, that takes away another mundane operational job that, that our estates team have to do, i.e. mowing of the outer wall garden, and hands it over to, let's say, a staff member <laughs> that um, is cheaper for us to run and also allows our estate teams to focus on the tree collection yeah so Alex I got very excited in the orchard last year because there was a southern marsh orchid appeared last year ah. and I think I could see the leaves of a, a um, greater butterfly orchid so in the next couple of weeks they'll reveal themselves so yeah. I think I think what, what we have to do with you uh, uh, Bruce particularly and Laura uh, in the science team is talk to you about how we manage the grazing pattern on that yeah. so that we don't do anything that harms the potential establishment sure. of a nice 
um, orchard flora beneath the beneath the apple trees. Yeah. You're very well aware of biosecurity here, mm. so you are creating a, a kind of a holding area. I, I don't know what the right terminology is. Well, we'd call it a reception facility. Reception facility. That sounds very okay, uh, harsh, okay. doesn't it? Okay. No music in it, though, no? No, no. Yeah. not Well, I suppose we could pipe some uh, <laughs> some nice elevator music in. If, if, if people feel the necessity, that might kill the plants, I think. Well, I'm, you can't see me on here, but it's, it's near our corporate entrance. Yeah. So you're going to, any plants that come here in here, we're going to be effectively quarantined for um, a certain amount of time so they don't spread diseases. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, what we, uh, alongside the rest of both botanic gardens and, and just gardens generally in the UK, are increasingly aware of is our impact um, on our own gardens and on other gardens uh, through bringing plant material in. And what we want to do is manage out as much as possible the potential to bring in new pathogens, so new diseases or pests that potentially could lead to long-term issues essentially without without yeah. collection so the the plant reception facility will allow us to quarantine material when it arrives on site so it it'll come it's not it's not a quarantine facility it's not up to the standard uh, government statutory quarantine facility is up to but it does allow us to for example take any water that we water onto the plants and hold it in a bonded container and dispose of that off-site it does allow us to prevent any insects that might come in on that material um, from getting out into the wider garden so for example we have threat netting in there and that means that we have much greater control of what's coming onto site so I'm currently writing uh, and this is the boring bit a plant health and compliance policy and that basically says any plant material that comes onto site has to comply with these following site rules so it has to be obtained legally for example and in in um, in an appropriate manner with all the relevant policies and protocols uh, globally and it equally has to comply with plant health legislation and it has to be uh, plant material that is uh, on a certain so there'll be a list of material that for example that can't come onto site because those plants are carriers of certain pathogens that we certainly would not want to to be to bring on so i think the key with the plant reception facility is about responsibility and it's about us being responsible um, guardians of the collection that we have in front of us. Okay. And talking about that, my sort of question for you, Alex, is, um, say, when I first met you, you came here to talk about plant collecting treatment in Vietnam. Yeah. Are any of those uh, plants that you collected that day in Botanic Garden here and now? Yes, they are. So oh, we were very lucky in the sense that Cambridge, we brought a lot of material back from that trip. I think there was somewhere in the realms of about 500 collections. Uh, I grew a lot of it up for Cambridge University Botanic Garden, but there was surplus. And that some of that surplus came over here. Uh, and if you go to the inner walled garden and you go where we've got the magnolias, so if you go to the beds with the magnolias, yeah. just near the tropical house, you'll see there's two magnolias down there from that, that, from that trip. So there's magnolia sapiensis and there's magnolia insignis. Um, and we have further Vietnam material dotted throughout the gardens, but it makes me very happy to know that, that some of the effort and time that I've put into collecting material, and that was done alongside Royal Botanic Gardens Edinburgh yeah. um, and alongside Kew, uh, has found its way here. That's great. I did not know that. Yeah, it was cool. It's very cool. I, I think that if anybody, and I'm sure many people listening to this grow plants, 
there is there is a massive attachment to growing plants. So, for example, when I left Cambridge, I had three and a half thousand accessions that I left behind, and it's like leaving behind. I know it sounds stupid. It's like leaving behind kids. You know, yeah, I yeah. put I put years of work into growing them. So the opportunity to just have a couple of things come across means a lot to me. And there'll be plants that I follow over the course of the next couple of decades that I'm here. Oh, well, that's lovely. Thank you, Alex. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you.